In, in June of 1969, I was in basic training with the Coast Guard at the time, and I, I remember that the American Apollo space program uh, had put a man on the surface of the moon. It was the only time in basic training we were allowed to watch TV uh, because on that moment in the White House, uh, there was an award ceremony that, that followed that event. And the President of the United States uh, praised the wonder of modern science by saying these words. He said, the planting of human feet on the moon is the greatest moment in human history. Well, at the very same time, across the country in California, Billy Graham was holding a crusade in Los Angeles, and that night he began his message by saying this, With all due respect, the greatest moment in human history was not when man set foot on the moon, but when the infinite and eternal God set foot on earth in Jesus of Nazareth. The, the, The president may have had enthusiasm, but the evangelist actually knew the truth. As we heard it from the Bible this morning of Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. The Almighty God entered the human arena, our lives, our world as a baby in Bethlehem, He came in weakness so that we might see the fullness of glory. S.D. Gordon summarized it all up in one sentence. He said, Jesus is God spelling himself out in a language that all humans could understand. Emmanuel, God with us. And each year as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, we are taken back really to that most incredible event with the 2020 vision of hindsight. And I wonder at times, if any of us had been alive at that time, would we have been prepared for his coming ourselves? And in thinking of that question, playing that time machine thought, I, I fully suspect that we would probably have been just as surprised as the shepherds that we would probably at all have been just as put out as the innkeeper, and we would have probably all been just as inconvenienced as Mary and Joseph in trying to find a place to stay. And even with all the words of the prophets and, and the full voice of scriptures promising that a Messiah would come, that Jesus would be born, the fact is he would probably catch us all by surprise. Some time ago, I read an Advent devotional, a, a, a very clever thought that is, has that, that is, that is stuck with me every year. And it went this way, that from the first Christmas on, Christians have celebrated Advent as a way to make up for that surprise of his birth. It's our way of saying, Jesus, we're sorry that we weren't ready for you the first time you came. We promised to do better the next time. (laughs) Well, this morning I want you to know that there will be a next time, and when it happens, we can do better. This is the last Sunday of Advent, and while last week we sought out the meaning of Christmas past, where we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that Christ's coming was planned from before the foundation of the world, this morning I want to point to the meaning of the Christmas future. 
I, I know I'm violating Charles Dickens' outline from the Christmas Carol where Scrooge discovers Christmas by going from uh, with a ghost from Christmas past to Christmas present to Christmas future. I'm mixing it up. Next week will be Christmas present, but this morning I want to set our eyes on Christmas future. Or better yet, that event which is also known as the second advent of Jesus Christ. In theological circles, the word advent is used to describe two very distinct events. The second, when Christ comes again, and the first, when Christ first came. Now, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus made this second advent a promise. In the future, he said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, in the same way that the angels had appeared before Christ's birth to the shepherds, they appeared again to his disciples with a promise of a second coming. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, we read, Men of Galilee, the angels saying, Why do you stand here looking in the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. He is coming again. And you may have been surprised with the first time, don't let it happen again. He's coming again. And when he does, it will not be hidden in some obscure corner of the Roman Empire, tucked away in a stable somewhere. He is coming again, and we will all know it. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, we read, You will see the Son of Man coming again on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. In John chapter 16, verse 22, You may have sorrow now, Jesus says, but I will see you again. And when I do, your heart will rejoice and no one will be able to take your joy away from you. As we heard it read this morning in Philippians 2, the humble coming of Christ the first time, the emptying of himself by taking on human form, is matched and completed with the glory of his second coming, where with the name which is above every name we read, at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. There is no doubt in the heart of Scripture, no doubt in the mind of Christ that he would come again, and there should be no doubt in ours as well. It's really not a secret. Jesus made it as plain as it could be. We read it in John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to be with me. You can tie your hope to his promise because he does not lie. And believe me, we live in a world that is desperate for a word of hope. Without hope, our world cannot go on. 
The theologian Emil Brunner said it years ago. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the soul and the meaning of life. Our hope is given birth by the reality of the return of Jesus Christ. He will, he says, he will come again. And you can believe that. Because what he wills, will happen. His return is mentioned more than 300 times in the New Testament. And every creed in the church teaches that Jesus is coming again. In the Apostles' Creed, we read, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead and buried, who descended into hell, was resurrected on the third day. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And from thence he shall come. To judge the quick and the dead, he shall come. The Nicene Creed echoes, he says, he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. From the very beginning, his return has been ingrained in the hearts and the minds of God's people throughout all time within the church. But not everybody believes it. C.S. Lewis wrote that there are three reasons why people do not take seriously the return of Jesus Christ. First, because it hasn't taken place yet especially not according to the predictions that we find not only from the early church, but we continue to find erupting throughout the years where people expect Christ's early return, but the years pass by and the questions come. Why hasn't Christ come and why does he delay and maybe he's forgotten about us? The Apostle Peter anticipated this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-5 through 5, when he predicted that there will be scoffers who walk after their own lusts, who say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, Peter writes, for this they are willingly ignorant, denying his second coming. Willingly ignorant. There are some who ignore the second coming of Christ out of a willing ignorance. They won't believe it until they see it. And the trouble is, when they do, it will be too late. Uh, it'll be too late for them to seal their relationship with God, which means that now is the time for you to belong to Him. Again, you may have been surprised by His first coming. Don't be surprised with His second. C.S. Lewis added another reason that some don't take the return of Christ seriously. It violates the theory of inevitable progress that drives us forward. Lewis writes, he said, if we believe that mankind is progressing, we will never see the need for the return of Christ. Why do we need Christ to come back if mankind is making all this fabulous progress? Some don't see the need for his return, and they feel like they're doing just fine the way things are. They they feel like they can earn eternity by themselves. They are gradually moving in that direction. The third reason Lewis gave is that his promise cuts across the face of our personal plans and dreams. Many people already have their pleasures and their plans and so much more. They don't want to be interrupted by Jesus Christ. 
The book of Revelation may end with a single word of prayer, the word Maranatha, which literally translated means, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But there are many, I believe, who would probably add a whisper to the end of that prayer saying, come, but not too quickly. Because I have a few things I really need to do. I have a, my bucket list. I I have a few boxes I need to check off. So take your time. Take your time. Look, Jesus made a promise. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me that where I am, there you may also be. It is a promise you cannot ignore, you cannot deny, and you cannot dodge. And if you understand what it means, it brings hope to your heart and should set your soul on fire. The New Testament has three words that it uses to describe the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ. The first one, and the one that is used probably most often, is the word parousia which literally describes and is used to describe in other literature uh, to, to describe the coming of a king. In the Bible, we read of the king of kings and the Lord of lords that he returns, he peruses to this earth with great glory and power. We find that in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. It is something that makes all other events in the, in the history of the world and in our lives as well pale by comparison. The second word that the Bible that, that is used in the New Testament is epiphania, which means to appear, to be seen. And, and, and it, is, it is something that will escape no one's attention because it is a complete and utter, fully detailed event. And when Jesus comes again, every eye will see him, and that vision is something that goes far beyond our wildest imagination, or for some, their worst nightmare. The third word that is used in the New Testament is the word apocalypsis, which means the unveiling or the laying bare, the complete exposure. And epiphania, the, the, the vivid vision of this, is, it means the appearance. Apocalypsis means the understanding of what has been seen. The connecting of the dots where you look and say, oh my goodness, I get it. I understand. All the mysteries that, that life seemed to throw at me somehow converged together into a moment of utter clarity. And we may use the word majesty in describing God, but we really have no idea what that word means until that moment when Jesus comes and then the power and the might and the glory of God will be understood in full. It's no wonder that the Bible says that at the name of Jesus and his return, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will then confess he is Lord to the glory of God, the Father Almighty. He is coming again. And that is his intention. That is his promise. And that is his will. A will that he has for you in mind. You wonder what the will of God is. This is his will. Listen again to what he says in John chapter 14. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come back 
and I will take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Listen, it's just one week to go to Christmas. Two weeks to go before we go to a new year, a brand new year. And the fact is, not one of us knows what lies in store for the next week or for the next two weeks or for the next year. None of us have an idea what the future has in store. For some of us, I fully realize the future is a curiosity. For some, it's a suspense. For many, it might be a source of fear. It is impossible for any one of us to know what will happen tomorrow or next week or a year from now. You have no idea what lies ahead except for one thing, which I give to you as a gift this morning. One thing alone. Jesus Christ is coming again, and he's coming for you and me to be where he is. I read a story that happened at Christmas in the early 1950s when Marguerite Higgins, a a Pulitzer Prize-winning war correspondent, found herself huddled with the 5th Company of Marines on a very lonely hillside in the middle of the Korean War, the Chosan Reservoir, a a very famous and horrifying war uh, battle. She was trapped with this thin line of ragged troops in combat. They were were surrounded by an army of more than 100,000 Chinese communist soldiers, 100,000. One company. She wrote, in that particular cold, 42 degrees below zero, that's 42 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. The weary soldiers, half frozen, stood by their dirty trucks eating from tin cans. Next to me stood one Marine eating cold beans with a trench knife. His clothes as stiff as a board, frozen. His face, covered with a heavy beard, was crusted with mud. I asked him this question. If I were God and could grant you one Christmas wish on this Christmas Eve, what would you most like? The man stood motionless for a moment. And then he raised his head. He looked me in the eye and he replied, God, give me tomorrow. As we come to this last Sunday in Advent, looking to Christmas future, we raise our eyes to heaven with a very single and simple prayer on our lips. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bring with you the gift, not just of tomorrow, but of forever. Knowing that he has said, I'm promising you, myself. I have gone to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. And I will come back and I will take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am tomorrow and forever with Jesus. Now that is a gift which is worthy of praise. So as we now turn our eyes toward Christmas, there's a wonderful little chorus, a, a verse of a chorus of a Christmas carol that we sing that seems to 
bring this all to mind. Saints before the altar, bending, watching long in hope and fear. Suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear. Come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King.